So tonight, uh, TJ and I are sharing the talk. And the reason for that, besides this obviously <clears throat> abundant teacher team with only so many nights to talk to you, um, it's not because TJ hasn't had a chance to speak to you. He actually teaches the Dharma to you twice a day. He does way more than any of us. And, but recently, uh, Tija really took a huge new step in his practice and became a Roshi, a revered teacher in the Rinzai Zen tradition. So um, we just thought it would be a kind of celebration of this step in his life to have him sit in the central teaching seat. So we're going to share the talk. <laughs> uh, thank you, Trudy. Lovely. So now I should probably say something very zen and profound. <laughs> <clears throat> I do want to uh, acknowledge that, uh, that my Roshi and the facilitator of this, uh, of my uh, transmission is here and has been sitting with you all week and it's uh, the guy that sits over here like a stone, it's Doshin Roshi. And um, I'm also aware that uh, tomorrow will be his last day here. He's off, of course, as we do and, and uh, to teach. So thank you. Now, uh, so this week, um, over the course of the time, our time together, we've heard all the teachers share their, um, their insights uh, on identity. And what uh, an amazing topic and, and so relevant for us. So, You've heard from various angles, and, and both Trudy and I will share some aspect of this, that there is the relative nature um, that shows up as our person, and then sometimes what's called the absolute nature, or the, um, interestingly, sometimes called the true self. So this language can be interesting, especially given the, the fact of the, the teachings of, the, of anicca, anatta, and uh, dukkha, that is uh, impermanence and anatta being non-self. So, uh, of course, we know dukkha as uh, being part of the human condition, you know, the unsatisfactoriness of things, and how that kind of lands with us. So it's interesting to me in looking at this, the subject of identity to consider what this, you know, what this means in terms of who we are as the absolute nature and why that is relevant. So we spend our time doing our, our practice and um, investigate you know, letting go and uh, beginning to, you know, connect with a greater spaciousness within ourselves. And sometimes this starts slowly just by um, the process of uh, calming the nervous system, calming the mind, and so on like that. Uh, but what the practice can actually open into is real... Um, appreciation and often insight into the uh, interconnection of all of life. So we have the interconnection, we have interpenetration of, um, of all forms of life and the interdependency, one of the things that um, Will talked about last night often known in Buddhist you know, circles as dependent origination. 
But what that really is pointing to is kind of a sense of causality and understanding that, that we live in this ocean of causes and conditions. And because we show up here as, uh, as individuals, it is a challenge for us from time to time to really deeply connect with this, um, this nature that we also are. So one of the first times that I met uh, Roshi Jumpo, who's both a, a teacher to uh, Doshin and myself, um, he is like, he's one of these Zen rascals, right? So uh, we got immediately into a conversation and, and he uh, was inviting me to come and, and uh, teach um, at the uh, Shushins that, uh, that he was leading at the time. So, uh, so we sat down and, and it was before an evening thing. He said, so, who are you? You know, the, the great Zen question. And I'm sure I said something kind of like wisdom and compassion and, you know, the, just trying to, you know, get more into the, uh, the expression of the absolute. And he just, you know, like a Zen teacher, just kind of shakes his head and says, no, that's what you express. Who are you? So... I thought back on, on that and, uh, and rather than give a, you know, a quick answer, I just reflected with, with him and we, we had a little more dialogue on that and we were talking about, yes, you know, we do have uh, compassionate nature and yes, there is this flow of wisdom. But who are you? Who are you really? So I just sat there with him in that moment and, and um, not really, you know, in a certain way, not really knowing what to say, you know, which is also the right answer in Zen, too, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very profound moment for me when he said, who you are is all of life. So that particular moment was one of those um, uh, moments of, of insight, transmission, great appreciation for this quality of our interconnectedness, our, our nature that, that uh, connects with all of life. And we think of this um, sometimes, and it's... it's a challenge, or it can be a challenge, to to move out of the sense of our separate uh, identity as a personality, and so on. And this this aspect of ourselves is very important too. It cannot be um, underestimated um, or or underappreciated, I should say. So we connect with. Um, with all of life in this interconnectedness, uh, interpenetration and interdependency. So the other night, um, uh, Leela was talking about uh, Indra's web. And this for me is one of the great um, images in language that, that kind of shows this pathway, this uh, deeper understanding into uh, who we are in this connection. So I'm going to read a little different piece uh, from this one is uh, actually from the Rig Veda. It's slightly different than um, what Leela read the other night. And, uh, but it points to the same thing. There is an endless net of threads throughout the universe. The horizontal threads are space, the vertical threads are time. At every crossing of the threads, there is an individual, and every individual is a crystal bead. And every crystal bead reflects not only the light from every other crystal in the net, but also 
every other reflection throughout the entire universe. So when we stand and practice our Qigong, that kind of sense of alignment that we connect with, and this is also in the sitting meditation as I've guided you with, this sense of, um, of settling and presencing your nature right as you are um, is that reflection of the jewel that each of us are. But it's also important from time to time to recognize that that life which looks out of my eyes also looks out of your eyes. And we connect with that um, sometimes in wordless uh, appreciation and wordless illumination. So with this kind of basic understanding of uh, who we are in both the relative and absolute sense, it becomes very important then to connect with what do we do? You know, who, how do we show up? How do we have insight? How do we grow up? And how do we show up in life? So part of this connection, part of the Dharma, especially for me and I know for many of you, is the, the care that we have about our current conditions, about global uh, warming, about you know, the devastation of forests and so on like that. We have um, many conditions throughout the world that really require this um, amazing quality that we cultivate here also called compassion. So, um, when we recognize, when we begin to connect with this interconnection of all of life, um, we don't have to so much generate compassion. Compassion is naturally arising. And um, that quality is one of the things that really heals our interpersonal relationships, heals our, in, uh, our own experience in life. Um, I want to read to you one of my favorite quotes by um, the Dalai Lama as he talks about um, compassion. I was with the Dalai Lama. I've been with him many times for, uh, for teachings. And um, it was, I think, in, in 2000, I was down with some friends of mine. We were at, uh, in uh, Pasadena, as a matter of fact, down, down there. And it was, he was giving a, a big uh, teaching and empowerment and so on. Um, and he said, uh, as he was sitting there, he said, you know, some days I just don't feel like the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and I, I really appreciated, uh, there was something that came to me because we always have this kind of projection on our teachers in a certain way that they're always, you know, they're always the Dalai Lama. And so there was a kind of fluidity within uh, within him that expressed his recognition of the personality that he was and also the role and the responsibility that he has. And also when he sits into his space, when he sits in the Dharma seat, you know, he really does deeply um, express that connection, uh, that interconnection, that interdependency. Um, uh, recognition also with deep compassion. So I want to read this little piece right here from the Dalai Lama. He said, true compassion is not just an emotional response, but a firm commitment based on reason. Therefore, a truly compassionate attitude towards others does not change even if they behave negatively. Through universal altruism, you develop a feeling of responsibility for others, the wish to actively, to help them actively overcome their problems. 
So one of the things that really strikes me about this comment, this statement, is um, when he says it's not just an emotional response, but a commitment based on reason. So we, the reason is understanding this aspect, this quality of connection, of interconnection. And when you feel that, as I'm sure you have over the time, does not this radiant joy of compassionate presence open up? And that kind of leads the, you know, opens the door, opens the portal in a certain way for for action, for wise effort, for wise uh, action. So whatever course you may take, uh, however that, uh, you know, for, for some of you, um, it can be environmentalism, others work with education, others um, just expressing kindness um, is so um, essential. Because that that aspect that we, that we cultivate in our uh, Qigong and the connection with the, with the Qigong releases those tensions, release the, um, the habitual patterns through the body. So that is one of the reasons that the interface between Vipassana and the, and the Radiant Heart Qigong has been so powerful over the years here. And, and Jack and Trudy and Wes and our other teachers, have, have, and Spring and I have done uh, Qigong and Metta retreats. So it works directly into the fabric of the body. Everything that we've experienced, our whole life, has a signature inside our body in some way. And so this way of connecting with the body through Dharma, through the Dharma of embodied presence, the, the Dharma of embodied action and connection, this uh, beautiful mindfulness presence is a really healing, um, wholesome, creating uh, practice. So I really invite you to continue to explore this, uh, this aspect of, um, of the Dharma. So I want to read just one more uh, piece and then I'm going to um, let's turn it over to my beautiful friend Trudy. This particular um, quote is, I think, the one that um, that Wes was reaching for the other night, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I found it. There it is. <laughs> So see if you can recognize the, uh, who this great Dharma teacher is. Okay? A human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. We experience ourselves, thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of our consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Now, nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such an achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and the foundation for inner security. Some of you know that, who that author was. Wes? Yes. Yes. Einstein. That was Albert Einstein. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to uh, 
to um, practice the Qigong with you and to have these few moments of um, talking about some of the elements of identity and its relationship to the Dharma, its relationship to the Qigong and so on, like, like that. Thank you. Thank you, Tija. Pleasure. Honored to share this time with you. Um, that was beautiful. You know, Jack often uh, tells a story about, it's about a very famous research study that was done in the 70s at Stanford University. It's, it's really great if you can actually see the, the video of it, but you have to just use your imaginations. Um, so in it, in this experiment, a child around three years old is brought into a room and um, a marshmallow is placed in front of them. You probably have heard of this. And the child is told that the researcher is going to leave the room for 10 minutes, uh, maybe it was 15, I don't know, but 10 sounds long. And if the child doesn't eat the marshmallow, they get a second marshmallow. But if they succumb to temptation and eat the marshmallow, that's it. They won't get any more marshmallows. And then, <laughs> I think this part may have been um, debunked, but they followed up 10 years later to see how well these children were doing and whether, you know, whether if they could wait and delay gratification or if they just had to eat that marshmallow, if that was any predictor of their future success. And, <laughs> and they found, they, they scored, they did scores of the kids. I mean, it says SAT scores, but if it was 10 years later and they were three years old, I hope they were... <laughs> Their SAT scores, we should take them with a grain of salt. Um, maybe that's why it was debunked. Anyway, as supposedly the kids who didn't eat the marshmallow did better. But another interpretation of the study is that the kids who didn't eat the marshmallow were able to hold two opposing ideas in their mind at the same time. That they, they had that ability to hold the, I want to eat that marshmallow, idea and the but if I don't eat it I'll get another one I'll have two marshmallows that they could hold these two in their minds at the same time and there's a famous quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald which talks about this and this is actually what I want to talk about tonight um, he says the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Um, which, well, we'll talk more about that. Um, and recently, as you know, Jack and I got married. We got married June 27th and we kind of eloped. And just the only people who were there were Ram Dass and his companion, Jack, and me. And my grandchildren were horrified by this. Like, how could I get married without them <laughs> quite at the center of the event um, in their minds? How could I do this? So I promised them we would have another, we'd have the real wedding with just some family and friends in L.A. Um, later. And we did that in September. And we were trying to think, you know, who should officiate? Weddings can be quite boring, let's face it. And um, we didn't want to subject. Anyway, we got the idea that the kids should do the wedding ceremony. And so they got ordained at, in the Universal Life Church um, <laughs> online, which in case you're looking for ministers, we have some in L.A., but you have to be 13 years old to perform weddings um, legally <laughs> as a Universal Life Church minister. Owen, my, gra my granddaughter Allie is 15. Owen is still only 12, but since he's preparing for his bar mitzvah soon in March, we thought he was spiritually qualified. And <laughs> so he got his license. And then, um, so I gave them just this template of the ceremony that I got from Ram Dass, you know, just the outline of it. And they started looking at it, two souls united in love. And they were just like, you know what? We would never say that. So I said, okay, put it into your own words. Um, they did some beautiful words. Owen came up with, 
things like the aroma of love. Um, <laughs> Allie stood in front of everyone with total poise and confidence and expounded upon marriage and what it means. <laughs> and <laughs> so it was really fun. Um, but at one point when they were working on the ceremony, they started fighting with each other uh, because who was going to get to say, I now pronounce you? You know, that was the big conflict. So I called Jack later and I said, you know, our ministers are fighting <laughs> with each other. <laughs> and Jack said, that's okay. All religious people fight with each other. <laughs> um, so, and the kids were able to reconcile their differences and stand and perform a very loving, fun, beautiful ceremony. So maybe we would say, we could amend Scott Fitzgerald's quote and say, um, the test of our loving awareness is uh, the ability to hold two opposed experiences or feelings, ideas, identities in our mind at the same time and, um, and to be able to let them both peacefully coexist in the same heart. So this talk is about that element of our practice and uh, how, <laughs> how can we not fixate our identity on one side or the other of what's happening. I mean, the Buddha called it the middle way, being able to hold these sometimes polar opposites in our hearts and will experiment with doing that. And to me, it's really a key element of awakening, of enlightenment, of maturity. And Freud called it ambivalence, not the ambivalence we usually think of, of uncertainty or equivocal, you're not being able, like an undecided voter or something. It's not that kind of ambivalence. Um, it's, uh, it's the capacity to hold mixed feelings toward the same person ourselves in this situation. Oh, I don't need those anymore. Um, to hold these feelings like love and hate, for example, um, if you've ever had a family member, you probably know what it feels like to both love and hate the same person at times. Um, and how can we let this um, peacefully coexist in the heart? To me, the three marks of spiritual insight are not, as Tija was saying, the Buddha, what the Buddha said, um, anicca, anatta, and dukkha, but I'm thinking of this quality, and then it would be more like anicca, anatta, groapa. <laughs> and I say it that way because our Inside LA community recently went through a <coughs> paroxysm of change, and uh, it's always painful when that happens, and things are stabilized now, but it was painful and went on for a little while. And I think, I'm always interested in why someone's interested in what they're talking about. This is why I'm interested in what we're talking about, because when you sit in the teacher seat, you get a lot of different projections, and often people, and maybe you've even done this, idealize us. Uh, one of our assistant teachers was sharing that she thought when we were not teaching, we were all keeping silence totally all the time, <laughs> uh, doing the practice all the time, and uh, just speaking as necessary to determine like who would give the talk or something. Then this person spent some time in the teacher room and heard lots of laughter and joke telling and was sort of like, really? This is what you do? Fortunately, it's a mature practitioner. And so we didn't go from that idealized, you know, how we must be practicing all the time, mindful 24-7. We didn't crash to the opposite of idealization, which is what? Devaluing and um, usually getting mad because of the disillusionment, which is painful. So, but when you sit in the seat, people will idealize you. And then when you do something that disappoints them or doesn't live up to 
perhaps your uh, vision of what a spiritual teacher should be like or look like or act like or talk like, um, then you get to have a chance to have a feeling, maybe disappointment. Um, but for some people, it becomes much bigger than that, and it uh, shakes their faith. And I'm not talking about teachers who do really harmful things. I'm just talking about very garden variety things, not about um, you know hurting each other. So over the years of being um, in spiritual communities and practice and married to um, teachers, I've really seen the pitfalls of this kind of both the idealization and then, you know, the inevitable, it's inevitable fall from grace and, um, and watching people's kind of oscillate from one side to the other. Oh, she's right. No, she's wrong. Uh, watching this, I've really been drawn to exploring it and to help me bring compassion and understanding to some of um, what's been happening. So embracing the tension of opposite feelings, you know, this is a huge part of our practice. And, um, and you've all, as you sit and walk here, you've all been called to address and be mindful of the full catastrophe, as Sorba said. We think of it, we think John Kabat-Zinn said that, but um, actually the full fullness of life, all of it together, you have been meeting every single day, um, through the moments of the day. One of my um, kind of heroes of expressing this is a haiku poet that I got to know through Wes named Isa. And Isa, he's so, he can express that bittersweet quality of life, that poignant quality that you've all felt here with a kind of exquisiteness, um, in a brief haiku. And Isa had a lot of grief in his life. Um, his childhood was difficult. He finally found a wife and fell in love with her, Kiku. They had a child. Um, their first child died. And then their second child, a little girl, died, uh, I think, about two and a half years later. And Isa wrote this. He said, This dewdrop world is a dewdrop world, and yet, and yet. Such a beautiful expression of the fleeting, transitory, dewdrop nature of life. And still we cling, we want to live, we want our loved ones to live. Yeah, and yet, and yet. And then, a third child died. And then years, a few years later, Kiku fell ill and died. And this is what he wrote. Outliving them, outliving them all. Ah, the cold. Such a beautiful expression. I'm going to read you a couple more just that express this two-sidedness of life. Um, this um, This is one that he wrote on the occasion of the new year. He said, Trusting the Buddha, good and bad, I bid farewell to the departing year. So that faith that Spring was talking about, the faith through the good and the bad, trusting the path, trusting the teachings, trusting the Dharma, good and bad. And then the last one I want to share with you. He says, everything I touch with tenderness, alas, pricks like a bramble. Right? He just captures that love and loss and that tension in such a beautiful way. Uh, Sandy Boucher, in her book Hidden Spring, um, talks about getting her cancer diagnosis. And she said, The one still point in this turning world was the Buddhist practice I had been cultivating for 20 years. 
And she talked about how her formal meditation practice really, that she did through all the changes that we go through when we do intensive practice. You know, the emotions that just rage in our hearts and our bodies hurting and our minds torture us in countless ways. And, and she said, you know, she learned to be there for all of it and to cultivate an attitude of spaciousness and graciousness and compassion and acceptance. And she was really able to do that. And so uh, when she, she, she really, uh, so she wrote this book about what it was like having that background to meet the illness, um, to meet the cancer and how she used the practice and benefited and so forth. And she says, you know, she's not that particularly of an adept spiritual practitioner. That's what she says very humbly. Um, but when she got the news of her cancer, she really understood, okay, this is it. This is the test of my practice. Now I really am going to be called on to fully use my practice. And um, so I just want to read this because it's, again, both sides now, like that beautiful song. Um, Returning from the test with a doctor's voice echoing in my head, I walked up the back steps to my house. Well, I'm 59 years old, I thought. I've published four books. I've experienced marriage and many intense, intensely engaging love affairs. I've done honest political work. I've traveled. I've lived my life fully. If this is the end, it will be all right. Then I walked through the door, through the kitchen, and into the living room where her partner, Crystal, lay on the couch. Now she sat up and looked at me, her face creasing with concern. What is it? she asked. I walked over to the couch, knelt on the rug, and burst into tears. Crystal put her arms around me as I choked out the news. And then she too was crying as both of us felt the terror that my life might end. Her life has not ended, P.S. But, right, it's just that ability to be equanimous and accepting and heartbroken, both at the same time. Our practice doesn't shield us from anything, um, but it, it softens us and opens us to be willing to be vulnerable and to be willing to be more naked as we meet life. I mean, I'm from New England, and I used to talk about how this practice is like taking off the storm windows. You know, we don't have storm windows here, but it's really removing whatever it is that stands between us and our direct experience of life. Uh, my beloved friend Anam Tupton, the Tibetan Rinpoche, Years and years ago, um, he was teaching, we were teaching together, and he kept talking in his Dharma talk about removing the whales. And I was like, what, what did they do? <laughs> and it was so unlike him to talk about removing a whole species. And he kept saying, removing the whales, removing the whales. Of course, you've probably gotten it already. He was talking about this, about removing the veils. You know, whatever stands between us and that vivid, intense, raw, real experience of life. Um. Another person that I have admired, um, I want to tell you, this is... Uh, a story of someone you've all probably heard of named Oscar Romero, who shows us how it's possible to step out of a very dualistic way of being and identifying to have a realization that you're actually part of everything. So um, Oscar Romero was a young priest who struggled a lot with um, perfectionism very rigid sense of perfectionism and shame. Um, and he struggled because he had such a sense of his own unworthiness. He just 
threw himself into his work. He worked really hard to prove himself to himself and others. And he ended up being diagnosed by a psychiatrist as having um, uh, an obsessive perfectionistic disorder. I'm sure everybody here has self-diagnosed themselves with that at some point during the retreat. Obsessive perfectionistic disorder. Um, So he tried even harder to get it right, threw himself into his work even more because he was very worried about what people thought of him and he didn't want to have a perfectionistic obsessive disorder. Um, And so because he worked so hard and was so good, he was chosen to be the Archbishop of El Salvador because they, they thought he was a very safe, orthodox candidate. He followed the rules, he was super good, and this was a time when liberation theology was happening and a lot of the um, Catholic clergy were siding with the poor, helping them with fight for their rights, um, struggle for social justice, and um, the powers that be did not want an archbishop like that. So they chose Oscar Romero. But a few weeks after he was named archbishop, a dear friend of his, a Jesuit priest, and two others were uh, murdered because of their work for the poor, precisely because of their work for the poor. And he went to see their bodies laid out in the church. And one of them was his dear friend. And something happened. He, you know, his heart opened. And he had a moment of realizing um, Christ in him saw Christ in the suffering poor. Whatever language what we want to use, the barrier between himself and the poor people of his country fell away, and he became completely identified with their cause and was, became um, you know, an activist and really struggled for social justice. And oddly enough, the struggle for perfectionism completely fell away. Once he was no longer worried about himself and was identified with the others he was working to help, he just didn't have any of those problems anymore. So... And we, I think, have seen that here, too, in practicing the metta, that the concern or the compassion or the love for somebody else can just pull us right out of being obsessed with ourselves, the way we can get on retreat when everything is so amplified in the quiet. Um, And unfortunately, the end of that story is that um, Archbishop Romero was assassinated when he was celebrating the Mass. I think it was March 24th, 1980. I remember because it's my grandson's birthday, and it's also a day that has been designated um, to honor the struggle for social justice. Um, He was assassinated by probably people connected to the people who made him the Archbishop, as as incredible as that may be seem. Um, so I was, I was talking about some of these ideas this afternoon with Dawn, and, uh, and she got really excited and shared with me a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about what he calls generous orthodoxy. And of course, that's a bit of an oxymoron, because the generosity of, you know, being open to new things and Um, willing to experiment and try things on doesn't really go with the idea of being orthodox and adhering strictly to beliefs and customs and, and, um, and so forth. And we started talking about this because we were talking about um, the need to have people in the community, a community of teachers, for just random example, um, people in a community who are both conservative and dedicated to 
keeping the teachings in the way that they understand as purely as possible, and people who are willing to experiment and innovate and try out new things. And we were talking about the need for both. So she shared this um, generous orthodoxy with me. And, um, and I just wanted to share one... She, in the story, in, I mean, in the podcast, Malcolm Gladwell tells the story of a man named Chester Wender, a Mennonite man who he said looked like a cross between Colonel Sanders and a um, football linebacker. Um, he interviewed him when he was 98 years old, and he wrote something that uh, he called it a love letter to my church. And he wrote this letter here. He wrote this letter. I'm just going to read you a little part of it. Uh, out of the anguish that he felt of s holding such intense conflict in his heart, um, because wait, I'll read from his letter. When our gay young adult son, about 35 years ago, was excommunicated from the Mennonite Church by a church leader. Without any conversation with him or his parents, my wife and I grieved deeply. For many years, in the company of other grieving parents of homosexual people, we've told our stories, read and reread the scriptures. Most striking to us is that God, who created the world, who gave us Eden, also gives us the leaves of the tree for the healing of nations. And he quotes from uh, the New Testament. I don't have the exact quote, but the quote is basically, the gospel is open to all those who have faith. All those who have faith. And he wrote this letter out of his grief at what happened to his son. He himself was excommunicated for performing part of the marriage ceremony for his son when his son fell in love with a wonderful man. And, and he and his wife, married for 70 years, you know, devoted to their church, wrote this very beautiful love letter to their church about why the church needs to change. And, but it's written so respectfully. And there again, to be able to hold the grief, the anger, uh, the disappointment and disillusionment with the treasuring of their community, of their path of faith, um, to be able to hold all of this and express it so beautifully. Um, it's so cute because in the podcast it talks about how his, um, his letter went viral. And he laughs and says, I didn't know what viral meant. <laughs> I thought it just meant something really contagious. <laughs> it was very, very sweet. Um, <clears throat> there are many, many pages here, and I just want to share, I'm just choosing what I want to share with you uh, as in closing for this talk, um, and I think I just will talk about again this, uh, the ability to hold these different points of view or perspectives. Um, when my daughter was two and a half, one night we were going for a walk and the moon was out, and she was looking at the moon. And she said, the moon is going for a walk with us. And I thought, oh, that's so poetic, you know. And as Will was saying, we think anything our child says is very, <laughs> she's going to be a genius of a poet. And, um, but then she said, why is the moon following us? <laughs> and you try it. You can see, Right? The moon follows you when you walk. And years ago, I studied with Jean Piaget, a developmental psychologist um, in, in Geneva, Switzerland. And for him, cognitive development 
you know, so sequence of these kinds of, he called it decentration, where, you know, we go from thinking the entire world, you know, the moon is following us, the entire world revolves around us, to understanding that um, the moon's position doesn't involve us personally, and that it can be seen differently from different vantage points and multiple perspectives. We understand that, you know, spatial coordinates exist outside our bodies and um, and, and humans, we've had to undergo a similar series of understandings that uh, the Earth is no longer the center of the solar system, that the solar system is no longer the center of the universe, that um, not only are human beings no longer the center of the natural world, there might even be like many more universes, not just galaxies, universes. Leela was telling me about a physicist friend of hers that was talking about that. So decentration also is describing the development of this spiritual maturity, this ability to open our hearts to not have to just identify with I and me and mine. And uh, I want to share with you one of my favorite Dharma quotes in the whole wide world. It's by Nisargadatta, the teacher that Jack mentioned in his talk, having studied with in India. And he says, I find that somehow, by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of that thing. And I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness, love. Then he goes on to his more famous, well-known quote, love tells me I am everything. Wisdom says I'm nothing. And between these two, my life flows. But he's also talking about being able to be both the subject and the object of experience. That at any point in our lives, when we slow into the experience of being with another, and the other can be understanding the ceiling, what it's like to look down on all of us and be a ceiling, or the floor that sustains and supports our life and holds us up. Uh, it doesn't have to be a human other. But the more we are able, he says, um, I can be both the subject and object of experience. I can express it by saying I'm both, neither, and beyond both. Or, as the Buddha would express it, like the middle way, when we can be connected to ourselves, not lose ourselves, while putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes and really imagining empathically, this is an activity of empathy, you know, what it might be like to look through your eyes or for you to look through my eyes. Uh, when we can do this, I think this is kind of extreme empathy, you know, like extreme sports. Um, you know, when we can do this and not be fixated in any one of the identities, we really see that um, there is no other. We are intimately, intimately connected to everything. And we don't need to look outside of ourselves because this self has the capacity to do that, to do this. Um, I think this is also what Zwickon meant when he said, don't be deceived by others by thinking it's somewhere out there, the truth. Um, and I'll close with just sharing an experience with my um, beloved Soto Zen teacher, Koben Chino Otagawa. In my first meeting with Koben, like we have our meetings here, he gave me, um, he asked me a question. It was a very apt question for me because it was early in my practice. I've been practicing about three years. It was during a 
session, an intensive silent retreat like this, and I was um, very prone to hanging on the words of the teacher and not certainly having the confidence to trust myself at that time. And he said, okay, so when all the teachers are dead, (laughs) who will be your teacher? And I immediately said, oh, everything, everything will be my teacher, which I thought was a great answer. Don't you? It's a good answer. (laughs) I said, everything will be my teacher. And he said, no, no, you, you yourself will be your teacher. So this is our practice. Not that we aren't respecting everything we learn from everything, but that the focus of our practice is really to our own hearts. And that's where we learn. That's where we learn we can hold opposites, love, hate, joy, sorrow, loss, all the worldly winds. We can hold all of this in our heart. All of it can peacefully coexist and um, And that's what I want to share with you this evening. So let's just sit for a moment together before I ring the bell. By shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness and I call this kind of attention love. So while it's really very nourishing and nurturing to listen to words of Dharma, we're going to have a chance to listen to a song that expresses um, what Teach and I have been teaching tonight.
bring the little fishes. Bring the sharks. Bring them from the brightness. Bring them from the dark.
bring them all Bring them all into my Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.